Uh, hello everyone and welcome to uh, Shot Reverse Shot. Uh, I'm Matt Risby, hello. And joining me as always via satellite is Ed Davis. How are you doing, sir? Yeah, doing very well. Uh, currently watching some American football, uh, which has been ever so slightly competitive, but not overly so. So hopefully it shouldn't detract too much from our conversation today. Mm. Yeah, for those of you who don't know, uh, Ed is a compulsive gambler and uh, can't get through an episode without uh, watching uh, kind of six or seven games at once. So um, he's currently got a bet on uh, the Patriots and he's got some money on Canadian football and the lingerie league as well. Yeah, if if there's no games on, then I just bet on films I'm watching. Mm. I'm currently trying to get out of the hole of when I bet on a, on Rocky Balboa to win in the first Rocky. Mm, yeah, yeah. Long odds, but don't pay off. Um, <laughs> anyway, what the hell are we talking about here? Um, we're going to spend this episode uh, talking about um, all things Lord of the Ringsy. Um, uh, we kind of wanted to do this uh, when the, the Hobbit trilogy came to a close, and now we've both seen the last uh, third of that particular triumvirate. Um, it seemed like a good time to do so. I kind of you can hear the resignation in my voice because um, we weren't too fond of the Hobbit trilogy, were we? Ed? Yeah, I think it, it very much felt like an obligation, pretty much from the start, um, in terms of watching the first Hobbit film as it was coming out, I could feel my anticipation draining as all of the reports of people talking about the 48 frames per second stuff and the 3D and it looking like a Spanish telenovela but with dwarves Mm -hmm. um, and all that sort of detail and looking, oh, I could still pull it out and the reviews came out and they were terrible and it's just kind of waned uh, in kind of increments ever since to the extent that, you know, going to see Battle of the Five Army was like, I don't know, it was like going into for detention or something. <laughs> you know, it was just something that you kind of had to do or you might get in trouble or something. It was kind of like going for a routine teeth checkup. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It was something like, you know, it happens once a year. You kind of go in and it's just going to be easy to get over with. Whereas that's not really how we felt about seeing the first few Lord of the Rings films. Not that I can remember anyway. No, I mean, all the, the first three I saw on opening day, all the, all for all of them, hugely excited, uh, bought them with the extended editions and watched them endlessly. These ones, I've felt pretty much no urge to revisit any of them after immediately after watching, and that, I think, is a quite a damning thing, because I, I would say that the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy are some of my, you know, they were some of my favourite films of the last 10 years, and I still really, really enjoy them. Um, and that was not the case with the Hobbit trilogy at all. Mm. Got some news for you as, uh, as well, Ed. Like the last Lord of the Rings film was released twelve years ago. Well, yeah, that's quite depressing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that those those are one of those. I think every ten ten years is always kind of a weird anniversary for these sort of things. Um, yeah, and but for those ones, it feels especially uh, sad because you can really see the debts to which the franchise fell in you know relatively short order mm. so before we kind of get into uh, the nuts and bolts of of what we're talking about i have a, a simple question to ask you um did peter jackson um jar jar the lord of the rings franchise with the hobbit films mm. yeah i think to an extent or, or maybe Maybe more accurate is it was uh, he kind of matrixed it. Right. So I don't okay. think that the 
Lord of the Hobbit films fall to the same depths that the Star Wars prequels did, in that there are still signs of good filmmaking in there. There's still like individual sequences that you can point to and say, you know, that's really good. That's a sign of the stuff that he does well as a filmmaker and what made the original special. But at the same time, they're not uh, anywhere near as good as kind of overall works in much the same way that Matrix Reloaded and Matrix Revolutions have kind of isolated moments that are kind of really, really, really good and really stunning and remind you of what was really fun about The Matrix, but as a whole are kind of a slog and not actually all that enjoyable to sit through. Mm. Um, so where on earth did Peter Jackson go wrong? I mean, could we start at, at the big kind of elephant in the room in that, like, um, The Hobbit as a book is, is a very lean, kind of straightforward, episodic adventure um and the lord of the rings films are the lord of the rings books sorry are kind of dense uh lots of characters lots of languages lots of stupid songs lots of diversions lots of kind of guff some might call it an unadaptable book um and they seem to do a pretty good job of um adapting an unadaptable series of books the first time around but uh for the hobbit they've taken a very straightforward uh, simple story and kind of made it unfilmable almost. Mm, the whole endeavor kind of feels like an inversion of what they did the first time round because the first time round it was a big, huge financial risk spending three hundred million dollars to make a trilogy about a, a you know an adaptation of a very popular series, but in a genre that at the time wasn't exactly kind of huge money there wasn't a huge market for epic fantasy films in the uh, early 2000s and also uh, you know as was revealed in an interview with Vigo Mortensen fairly recently the second and third films were not a sure thing even as they were being filmed and as the uh, until the fellowship of the rings became a huge hit he said in an interview that essentially the fir- at the time that the first film was released the second and third films basically were in huge trouble they barely existed at all uh because they were just kind of a jumble of things they didn't really have the money to do the effects they wanted and there was a serious possibility that when unless the first film was a hit the second and third ones would be straight to dvd Mm. and then obviously the first film was huge and they used that success to do extensive reshoots and basically create the films anew and created films that people went to see and that were hugely successful, won all the Oscars and made huge amounts of money. This time, they were kind of a sure thing from the beginning because the Lord of the Rings films were huge. People wanted to revisit that world and uh, and they had all of the money to do it. And instead of taking, like you say, a very thick, very difficult book and kind of pruning it down to the bare bones and making it into a, you know, even though those films are all very, very long, they are kind of fairly lean for the kind of films that they are. Um, They took a book that was uh, incredibly short and seemingly very easy to translate into a film and made it kind of three incredibly bloated films. Mm. And that is the principal problem with the whole thing, is it is uh, padded beyond... Uh, kind of resembling anything to do with the book, really. Like I say, it's there's so many kind of um, uh, 
attempts to try and kind of curry favour with fans by forcing stuff uh, from the original trilogy's uh, characters and locations and things that perhaps weren't part of The Hobbit as a book. Um, like what, what, you know, the, the only reason really is to kind of extend it to, to three films. I mean, when the news came out it was going to be two films, people were surprised, weren't they? But when it became three films, it seemed, you know, blatant crash grab. Mm, especially because that came so late in the day. Because I think it was announced maybe sort of four or five months before the first film came out. Because I remember we talked about it on a podcast at the time. And we were both kind of like, oh, I mean, it could work. But it seemed like they were spreading things very, very thin with two films. And when you watch the three films, uh, it feels like they really were stretching it. Because there's the, especially the third film, which feels so incomplete and like it's not even a film mm. um it feels like the season finale to an incredibly elaborate and expensive soap opera because you know the it begins with smog dying which should really be the finale of the second film mm-hmm. i mean that makes logical sense that smog shows up and then he that they arrive and smog uh goes completely batshit and destroys Lake Town. And then it ends there, and, you know, that's kind of a doom-laden moment, so you think, oh, I guess they'll wait till the midway through the second, through the third film to actually kill him off or something. But instead, it's like, before the title credits, the villain of the second film has been dispatched in kind of slightly uh, disappointing manner. And they... It, it actually, that kind of reminds me a little bit of... Uh, Revenge of the Sith to go back to a Star Wars thing because obviously second film they introduce Count Dooku make him out to be this really important big badass and then in the first 20 minutes he gets his head chopped off Mm. and it just feels again like they really had no idea how to make this story work as three films so they just chopped it up at any old point put in the death of Smaug because it's kind of a big event they can you know, kick the film off with, and hopefully people will miss, will ignore the fact the third film is essentially just one long battle scene with no real uh, stakes or interest in it. Mm. And it's, I mean, Jackson's got previous with this, hasn't he? In that he had, he didn't really know what to do with Saruman uh, in the original trilogy, um, finally ending up with uh, a kind of belated, uh, kind of throwaway demise put into the extended version of the third film. Yeah, they, instead of giving him his proper ending at the uh, scouring of the Shire, which you know I can understand why they made that change because the the film as it stood as it uh, stands has too many endings anyway. So mm-hmm. having the entire scouring of the Shire thrown in as well probably would have been just a tad too much. And they keep the basic idea, which is that Wormtongue turns on him and you know kills him. But yeah, the the actual death you see in the extended edition is so disappointing for what is kind of this what's built up as a huge villain that it actually works better to have just left him out of the theatrical cut because at least you don't end up being disappointed by how he goes out Mm. yeah so they they take the hobbit and they um split it into three and it is ironic given that the hobbit and the Lord of the Rings films as a whole, uh, the books and uh, Tolkien's writing as a whole, has got a very strong kind of like anti-capitalist, anti-greed message. <laughs> um, 
that they should divide it into three purely for monetary reasons. So we get these three films. Um, the first one, uh, which I think I'll go out on a limb here and say was the worst of the three. By, um, yeah, by a, well, I was going to say by a considerable margin, but it's not that considerable. So yeah, like, it, was, yeah. it was the worst. There's not a great deal in it. Um, what immediately made it uh, inferior to what we'd seen before? Uh, I think the mismatch of tones in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they knew they were adapting a more kind of light-hearted story, so they added a lot more humour to it. But it wasn't kind of the kind of sly, winking humour that you see in the Lord of the Rings films, like you know, no one tosses a dwarf sort of things. You know, it wasn't built from character. It was more. It was really juvenile. Like they were making a film for very young children, mm. but. It was one which also featured decapitation and people having our uh, limbs chopped off, and the potential a uh, potential apocalypse, and you know all of this stuff going on in the background, and it just felt like a complete tonal mishmash. And I think you can see, you know, I think uh, one of the things that's that's interesting about the Lord of the Rings films and the Hobbit is they're very reactive film series in that because they're they're filmed all at once but assembled as the people get to see them you know the first film kind of acts as the world's largest test screening Mm -hmm. for the subsequent ones because then you can see what people react to what people don't like they can then kind of uh course correct between the, the the two films and in the original trilogy you could really see after the first one after all with all the reshoots they were able to kind of change the emphasis and emphasize characters who were really popular like legolas so they would give uh legolas moments where he got to you know kill an elephant and stuff like that and these big crowd pleasing moments and i think in the hobbit you can really see after the first one people said the humor's terrible the second and third ones they remove that entirely mm. and make it really kind of dour mm. and which is difficult in its own way and has its own problems, but at least it's the you know certainly with the Destination of Smog, it's a more tonally consistent thing. Mm. Yeah, totally. Um, one thing that like kind of occurred to me the other day um, when kind of thinking about what to talk about in this is that you talk about what Viggo Mortensen said in his interview about the second and third films of the original trilogy were kind of in bits; they were a mess; they didn't really know what they were doing. Um, because they front-loaded the shoot uh, with with the uh, fellowship stuff, so they kind of got that done quickly, and then basically everything we see on screen in fellowship is shot during that original shoot, pretty much. The shoot famously lasted, you know, 14 months, I think it was, right? All those reshoots for the second and third film was another six months of reshoots. Now, in a film that would have reshoots as long as its original shoot, you've got to say that that film's kind of in trouble, I guess. And you can kind of tell when you watch the original films, um, maybe not in the second one, in the third one in particular, there are large sections which seem to have been kind of like redone or uh, they didn't really know what to do with, especially if you watch the extended version. Um, Do you think that like... You say that the the first film of the original trilogy acted as a, kind of the world's biggest test screening. Do you think that like it's almost unfair that they got to do it 
do it over twice. And perhaps we shouldn't judge it as a cinematic achievement um, based on that. Uh, I think you can still judge it as a, a big achievement because the end result is three hugely entertaining films that really kind of were huge successes and, you know, enraptured the world and all that sort of thing. But I think you're right that it's it it's weird to view it as a kind of completely unqualified success. I think at the time, certainly in my case, you know, when I would watch the, the DVDs and they had all the makings of and everything and they talked about doing reshoots, I thought, oh, that seems fine you know like your films do reshoots all the time you don't think yeah this actually sounds like this film was in tremendous trouble and they only just managed to kind of pull it off mm. i think uh it, it probably needs to be viewed as uh kind of a, a victory snatched from the jaws of defeat mm. uh more than anything else because that's that's kind of the sense you get when you talk about just how much of it they had to reconstruct after the first film gave them license to actually you know they get gave them the uh money to go and reshoot all of that stuff mm. um because i mean I, i've my own personal feelings towards the original three films like i say i kind of loved them when i saw them at cinema kind of you know poured over all the the dvd special features and everything but like now with a bit of distance and i kind of watch all three uh every now and then um kind of every couple of years i'll kind of watch them um I feel now in a position to say that, like, I think the first film is an absolute masterpiece of mm-hmm. um, of fantasy filmmaking um, and of kind of, like, world-building and, you know, as an adaptation, I think it's kind of breathtakingly excellent. Um, the second film is really good, especially in the extended version, which is the only real version. The extended version is of the second film is the only one that really really improves it um although not in an unqualified way um i actually think the third film's a real mess um and i actually think that the extended version of the third film is is kind of detrimental to the original cut because they add in so much more kind of obviously they add in the uh saruman thing which as we said is kind of terrible and a really bad treatment for of an iconic character but mm. just like it, yeah, that film was already very kind of unfocused and had so many different threads going off that when you just kind of keep adding to it, it becomes shaggier and shaggier in mm. much the same way that the final Hobbit film does. But the clear difference there is, uh, you have so much more goodwill towards the Lord of the Rings films that I think the Return of the and you know it's just a better film in general. But Return of the Rings, uh, Return of the King gets away with a lot more. Because mm, it's essentially just three hours of payoff. Yeah, it is a it is a finale in kind of uh, every possible way. You know, it really does take all of these character arcs that you've watched over two years and over six hours of film and just kind of, it's just payoff after payoff after payoff. And, you know, I think it's a, it's a kind of satisfying in a character and a, kind of a story level but i think you're right in that it is a kind of a very messy piece of filmmaking Mm. um which kind of frustrates me because like return of the king is the one that got all the awards um that seems to be like the highest rated on imdb and and other things because i think people are just so excited to see it 
uh, wrapped up. They gave it all the plaudits, but I think that it's somewhere off the standard the first one sets. Mm. Yeah, I think it kind of it's kind of a, a bigger version of that idea that people will be more forgiving of a film that starts uh, badly and ends strong than of a film mm-hmm. that starts strongly and ends badly. I think if if an ending is kind of if people are kind of happy and satisfied with an ending, then that sense of satisfaction is what they walk out of the theatre with and kind of everyone from audiences to the Academy or walked away from the final Lord of the Rings films feeling kind of satisfied and happy. And that's why it gets kind of considered to be so good when it probably doesn't deserve to be put on the same level as, you know, like the second one is, is my favorite of them. Cause I think it, it has a nice balance between that messiness and the, uh, and the, the the more clean storytelling of the first one, so it's like bigger in scope, but there's still kind of a very clear focus on character and all the small stories, mm-hmm. um, and especially in the uh, in the extended cut, as you said. Uh, but you know, the third one because it more or less sticks the landing. It kind of gets a lot uh, more. It gets it gets it's better, it gets a lot more positive response than it perhaps deserves. Mm. Yeah, when um, kind of going back a bit now, when um, the films were announced, I hadn't read the books. Um, I kind of just thought it was for nerds, and you know, in for in a way, it is. But like, I didn't really realize the books were really good, and I kind of read them and then saw the films, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The thing that excited me about the films before I even knew about um, the books was the involvement of Peter Jackson because when I was 14, I think maybe maybe younger, I kind of recorded a film late at night. I can't remember what it was. It was probably something like Under Siege 2 or something. And I kind of left the videotape running, videotape, that's how long ago this was, and it recorded a film called Brain Dead, uh, which was on afterwards. And I remember watching that and thinking, what the fuck is this? And then I realised that, you know, this was like a really fun movie and it became... Uh, uh, kind of like a huge part of my kind of cinematic education, I guess, and watched Bad Taste. And I remember Channel 4 screening the documentary about Bad Taste and how Peter Jackson made it for about 50p. Um, and I was just fascinated by that. So that's what drew me to it, really. And uh, his sensibilities as a filmmaker in the first three films, you can feel it coming through. And I was really excited by it. It seems like in the Hobbit films, he has kind of lost his sensibility from what I could see. And from off the top of my head, I can only remember one moment uh, in the entire three films that I felt like it was his. The rest of the film felt like the film's full stop. So we're talking like nearly nine hours of, 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 of film now. Just felt like spectacle filmmaking. Mm, yeah, I, I agree completely. Uh, I was thinking about this um, the other day, actually, and, and the analogy I would uh, point to is uh, the difference in quality between the Sam Raimi uh, Spider-Man films and the Mark Webb Spider-Man films, uh, the Amazing mm-hmm. Spider-Man film. Um, amazing in the title, not quality. We need to establish that. Only one yeah, half sure. of those <laughs> films perhaps deserves the qualifier amazing. Um, in that, the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films you get the sense they could only have been made by Sam Raimi because they have his, you know, certainly his visual stamp in 
the second one in the Doc Ock creation sequence where he shoots it like a bigger budget version of the Evil Dead with kind of these terrifying point of view shots and you know he kind of gets away with as much as you can uh, in a, a, a superhero film that will be seen by a lot of kids into and you know it was you know very intense and I think quite controversial at the time because I think a lot of parents took the, their kids to see it and was like what the fuck was all that about um, mm-hmm. but it's completely him only he could have made those films the way that he did even the third one has the uh, you know the a lot of the, the weirdness of that one is to do with uh, his particular odd sense of humour um, whereas the Mark Webb ones you get the sense that anyone could have made them those films um, yeah. like there's no particular stamp of any directorial authorial intent or anything in there it just it just these films just kind of unfurl and then they're over and there's no kind of real sense that you've been on a journey or anything and the hobbit films all feel like that it feels like you could have slotted in pretty much any director to that role and the films would have been sort of largely the same um, you know, there's none of the horror influence that you see in the first one. There's none of the tactile quality that you get from someone who loves practical effects, which I think was a big, was certainly a big part of what made the first film so great was that it was actual guys in makeup fighting each other. Whereas in the Hobbit films, it's all CGI guys in, you know, what looks like the worst cutscene from World of Warcraft imaginable. Mm. Um, and there's just no. Personal, there's no personality to them. They're all very, very bland, and they all have the sense of being a contractual oblig- obligation. The idea that he felt that he had to make them because you know it was his world, and if he didn't do it, then they'd get someone else to do it. And you know, his kind of choice of successor in Guillermo del Toro had to drop out because the production took so long and was just not feasible for him to, you know hang around in New Zealand with his family for another like four years waiting for the films to get made. Um, mm. And so like you, there's kind of a whole sense of them making the best of a bad situation. And, you know, the best of a bad situation is not great. Mm. I think that if um, Guillermo del Toro didn't do it and Peter Jackson didn't do it, Mark Webb was actually the, uh, the next in line. Yeah. He's always there for sloppy seconds. Mm. <laughs> um, um, and yeah, you kind of talk about uh, the the practical effects, and that is a huge uh, departure in, in 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 the sense that the ideals of the first film and how they made it. I, I seem to remember there's a there's a great thing on in the, in the kind of extras on the first extended edition DVD when they're talking about you know they're making a film with state of the art technology, um, but they're still using you know oversized props and scale doubles and you know, just like there's these real kind of just old school camera tricks they're using. The one where I think it's in the third film when uh, Denethor throws Pippin out of the the um, the funeral pyre scene, and he throws a a uh, a small girl who is is the scale double, and she kind of rolls along the floor and then into Billy Boyd who is laying in front of the camera, and he kind of pops up, and it's an old, it's just an old trick that they used in that's been you know a camera trick they've used in since you know film was invented but like in the new films everything's cgi everything's on a green screen the performances are flat because of that no one's really kind of 
believing anything that's happening. Every, every, there's no real stunt work. There's no real kind of um, makeup effects. It's all uh, kind of part creatures made like enhanced with CGI, which just it just kind of t- it, it sounds ridiculous to say in a film set in a fantasy world where there's like creatures with like six heads and stuff, but like it takes you out of it. It really does. Because mm, I think that a large part of the appeal was that of the original three was that they were, you know, they took place in this high fantasy world of dwarves, elves, magic, all that sort of giant eagles. But uh, there was a tactile quality to it. There was a physicality to everything that was going on. You know, like there were people in suits fighting each other. It was real locations. The models were like huge and wonderful and intricate and they looked and the world felt kind of lived in. Um, and again, mm-hmm. to make the Star Wars comparison, which I don't want to keep making, because again, I don't think these are as bad as the Star Wars prequels, but it's hard not to make the comparison. It's like the way that the the first three Star Wars films, the universe is kind of tattered and battered and looks like it's been kind of worse for wear. And then the prequels are all very shiny and it feels very unnatural and like a place that people don't live. And as such, it, it it's a little unreal and uh, hard to really kind of get your head around and to really get lost in the story. And I think the movement from practical effects to pretty much full digital does remove a lot of the charm of the films and it does make it a lot less special. Because a, a, a large part of what was really fun about the Lord of the Rings films is even though they were hugely expensive, well, not per film, you know, I think they were fairly average budget in terms of what blockbusters cost if you divide it up, but uh, because they were, you know, they were quite big and expensive, they were still kind of a, like a almost a homemade DIY charm to them in terms mm-hmm. of when you like get to see the behind the scenes stuff and you see the force perspective tricks, you know, like splitting a table in half and one half is really big and one half is really small and you set the camera up in just the right way and it looks like these characters are hugely different size or they talk about how they really looked out that uh, John Rhys Davis is a foot taller than all the guys playing the hobbits because it meant they only ever had to do two setups, one with the mm-hmm. hobbits and him and one with all the human sized characters instead of having to do three and saying that that actually saved them a huge amount of money. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, you know, so there's just this sense that these people are, are working something they really love and they're really working against limitations and in the in the, the the Hobbit trilogy, you get the sense that there's no limitations upon it, but there's also no. It doesn't feel like something that there's any real kind of love in. It just feels like a job, and you know I think that that is uh, a huge difference between the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit films. Is there's no real passion. You don't get a sense of any passion for the people involved. Mm. There's a, a great photo. Is a um, a screen grab. Uh, it was, I, I sort of kind of saw it on uh, the internet somewhere. Um, if that helps you locate it, um, there's a screen grab on the left of uh, the, the the exact um, behind the scenes uh, like shot you were talking about. It's when uh, Gandalf is visiting Frodo at the start of Fellowship, and they film it on a you know uh, Gandalf sat at a table and Frodo's pouring tea, but the teapot that Frodo is holding is actually 15 feet behind. The camera, Gandalf sat closer. Um, he takes a lid off a tea uh, off. Uh, sorry, he takes a lid off a teapot, um, which is near him. And Elijah Wood has to pour, you know, water into something else behind. 
the table split in half with this perspective that's forced, but because the camera moves, the table has to move. And it's this really elaborate rig, but it looks great. And then next to that picture is a picture of Gandalf filming the same scene, practically, from The Hobbit, where he visits Martin Freeman. And it's just Ian McKellen sat in a completely green room with his head in his hands. Uh, and it just kind of said it all to me. Yeah, I think that art, that picture's on the article um, on Cracked did on it about the ways to improve it where they talk about how it cost $2 million a page to film it in terms of, you know, the actual number of pages in The Hobbit. Mm. Um, and, yeah, talking about how the experience of working on green screen, green screen actually drove Ian McKellen to tears because it was so kind of difficult for someone who's not really used to doing a lot of green screen stuff to have to sit there instead of being on a physical set and interacting with people. Mm. And I mean, they did it a lot. They, you know, there's a lot of green screen in the original trilogy, but it was for bits where they were just kind of filling stuff in or a lot of that kind of patchwork uh, stuff that was done in the second and third films. And during those kind of uh, reshoots, there's a lot of it in there, but it seems like they set up to do as much as they possibly could in this. Mm, yeah. I think that there is just a general sense that no one was really uh no one was trying with the same amount of uh effort it's just i think the the big thing is that no one in this film is an underdog anymore mm. which i kind of feel that they they were with the first because you know peter jackson was this like weird new zealand horror guy who was whose biggest budget film was at that point was the frighteners <laughs> Um, which isn't like it wasn't a hugely expensive or hugely successful film, and he'd some he'd managed to convince a studio to let him make the film his way in New Zealand. Weta wasn't like a big effects powerhouse; they were they were fairly small or a comparatively small operation compared to you know all the other effects houses. And now you know Peter Jackson's a three-time Oscar winner. Weta's huge, and there's just yeah. Again, it just feels like people trying to repeat themselves and uh, with to much lesser effect. Mm. Yeah, it is a shame. Um, I think that then we obviously don't want to make the Star Wars comparisons because um, it's unfair because obviously the Star Wars prequels are um, horrifyingly bad and the disparity between the original trilogy and the, the prequel trilogy is, is huge, um, even against the Hobbit, Lord of the Rings standard. But I think the uh, the comparison you can make that's fair is that in between the trilogies, Jackson has traded uh, the kind of like rough and ready uh, practical approach to making a film for the convenience of digital. Yeah, you, you can really see that also in terms of his decision to shoot it in 48 frames per second. I think he is someone who obviously loved practical effects when he was younger and loved give it, being given the chance to put them in the first three films. But like you know the people who like practical effects he's someone who enjoys being given new tools and a bigger sandbox to play in and as a result i think he kind of got lost in that um and the, the you can really see in the 48 frames per second thing him uh putting technology ahead of you know the film itself rather than working on a smaller scale film or an experimental film to show what 48 frames per second could do he put it all in this kind of big, huge, crowd-pleasing epic because, you know, maybe people would adopt the technology and instead people 
rejected it in droves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that really feels like a case of someone losing sight of what the film should be about and in terms of instead and instead advancing their own kind of uh, personal interest. Yeah, I mean, it was a kind of, I mean, it was doomed to failure when you realise how impractical it was, um, just from a kind of consumer standpoint, because when the first film came out, I think there was like six different formats you could watch it in. It was like uh, 2D, 24 frames a second, uh, 2D, 48 frames a second, 3D, 48 frames a second, 3D, IMAX, 24 frames a second. Yeah, there was just a ridiculous kind of amount of configurations, and... um, it kind of seemed to uh, put people off and um, also people didn't really understand it and, and ultimately no one cared. Mm, yeah, going back to the idea of the, the Hobbit series as kind of a reactive franchise, you can definitely see that in the way that no one ever talked about the 48 frames per second thing uh, after the first film. Mm. You know, it was that was a big selling point of the first film and then the second one, there was no mention of it. I'm sure it was available in that, but it wasn't, you know, pushed in a big way. I think they accepted that it was a technology that whose uh, time had not come. Yeah, and uh, you know, it's going to be a while before we see that busted out again, don't you think? Yeah, I imagine. I imagine people might try and do it. I'm sure there there are interesting things people can do with it in, in the same way that you know, there's interesting things people can do with 3D in general, but that perhaps it's most likely to be of value for people working in kind of experimental cinema. There's probably not, or at least where people can work on it and work out the bugs instead of putting it in a big film where people would just say, this looks like shit <laughs> and can uh, reject it in uh, on mass. Mm, yeah. Um, and that's, that's the, that's the, the, the Hobbit trilogy's legacy, I suppose. Um, just going back to one second ago where I said, uh, that you know, there's only one part of the original trilogy of the Hobbit trilogy that I kind of identified as Peter Jackson, and it kind of felt Peter Jacksony. Um, for me, it was the bit in the uh, second film where they're lost in Mirkwood, mm. and they kind of uh, it's really well edited together. Um, the kind of sense of confusion and the kind of going slowly, slowly mad. Yeah, that bit was that that really did capture the psychology of the characters in a really kind of palpable way and in a way that felt real and physical and palpable and, and, uh, you know, had kind of a physical thing to it. Uh, and you kind of contrast that with the third film where Theon's, uh, not Theon, um, that's Game of Thrones. That is Game of Thrones. Yeah. Uh, the head dwarf. Thorin. 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 Yeah, if you contrast that against the third film where Thorin's descent into madness is represented by him sinking into a literal lake of gold mm-hmm. using effects that look like something from like the Imaginarium of Dr. Panassus or something. <laughs> um, uh, and it was, it was there's the bit as well that immediately follows that where he comes out of it and he walks towards the rest of the dwarves who have been kind of worrying about him and he kind of walks out of sunlight. Mm. And I'm like, where's that sun coming from? <laughs> aren't they underground it was just like it kind of you know it's the kind of thing that like the film is so uh, kind of heavy handed and clunky that you notice those things that you probably would have got away with in the original trilogy mm, the best example of that uh, which actually made me laugh out loud, loud in the cinema is when Bilbo is saying goodbye to the dwarves 
and like he's trying to sneak out and then one of them whose name i won't even bother to try and remember because they're all pretty uh indistinguishable mm-hmm. it, like one of them shows up and then they're all there and they all kind of laugh and then it cuts from frodo laugh, uh, bilbo laughing to the dwarfs laughing to gandalf laughing but it's not been established that gandalf is even there <laughs> like he's not been included in any of the shots and he's not spoken so his presence is completely uh, unknown at that point so like watching it it's just like it's like that moment in the room when the guy co- runs in and starts saying that he feels like he's sitting on an atomic bomb mm. it's just kind of like where did this guy come from like, <laughs> it's it's just it's just a really bad lapse in the basic uh editing and kind of framing choices of, of storytelling and that it really does kind of speak to the way in which the film feels like it's been was that the, the split uh, from three film from two films to three films really hurt the overall project and that they had to kind of scramble to assemble a third film out of what feels like the offcuts of a second one. Mm. Um, is there anything in the three Hobbit films for you that kind of touched anything kind of quality wise of the, of the original trilogy? Uh, I think that Martin Freeman's performance was better than any of the performances across all six films. Mm-hmm, absolutely, I agree with that. I think he got the real short end of the stick in that he was giving a performance that was kind of funny and soulful, and any time the film required him to just talk to other characters, particularly uh, in the first film with the riddles in the dark sequence, and then the second film with him talking to Smog, they really kind of shined. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons why the third film doesn't work as well as the second film as there's no real centerpiece scene like that um we talk like everyone talks about how we can't basically can't wait to see a fan edit of the three films so we can see what it would look like if it actually if it would actually work as a single story Mm. um like my fan edit of it would be like the proposed steve jobs film where it's just him at three product launches for me it'd be just like three or four conversations with Bilbo talking about things because I think that's the stuff that really really works and it's just a shame that um, Martin Freeman's kind of been saddled with three films that are kind of tarnished the legacy of the the Lord of the Rings and you can really see particularly in the third film how the the focus was completely not on him as a character not on Bilbo in that it's a film with the that's called the hobbit all three of them are called the hobbit and in the third film uh he's like seems to be in the background of scenes more than anywhere else mm. yeah i mean that that's the case in the book isn't it because he kind of is unconscious mm. for most of it um most of the kind of the, the final uh finale but when you've stretched the film out for nine hours then that kind of amplifies how kind of uh how much of a loss that is to the to the to the kind of narrative having you know the 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 kind of uh your kind of moral compass and your guide through this world um you know redundant you have to kind of rely on cgi legolas kind of <laughs> somehow put on 40 pounds um before uh entering the fray and kind of doing all kinds of ridiculous computer game shit yeah i also think that they wait a thing I really liked, even though conceptually her inclusion doesn't really make sense. So I thought that Evangeline Lilly was very good as uh, Thrandall. I think Tor- she Toriel, a... Ed. Toriel? Mm-hmm. Okay. It's, Th- it's Thrandall, uh, Legolas's father. I don't know. He's the, yeah. kind of the guy from Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. 
Or that's all. The, the pie maker from uh, Pushing Daisies. Um, wow, that's niche. <laughs> it is niche. Uh, oh. Lee Pace, I do like him. He's he's very good. But anyway, getting distracted. I thought the Evangeline Lilly was very good. I think that she was the best female character, probably the best female character across all six films, particularly for about two thirds of the second one. She's kind of funny. She's got her own uh, sense of direction. She She kind of has some agency. But then they fucking squander that in the second one where when uh, they get attacked by the orcs, Legolas goes off to fight them and they leave her to tend to the dwarves. Mm. It's um, it's not really much praise, is it, by saying she's the best female part in, in the Lord of the Rings films? True, but I do think that they did a good job of building her character up in the second one and then they just really completely squandered her to the extent that in the... Uh, I thought it was really... Uh, telling that in the second one, in the third one, uh, where she doesn't even get her own horse when her and Legolas kind of ride off to spy on the uh, in the, on the orc encampment for seemingly no real reason. They don't actually do anything when they go there. They just go off to some be out of the film for a bit, so they can p- come back and save the dwarves at an opportune moment. But like, it really does feel that as if that she became a real afterthought after being included for uh, obviously very stupid things of a uh, reason of a love triangle that seems to be them trying to uh, twilight eyes the hobbit films mm. yeah i mean that's the one one of the well one of the many bits that uh, didn't ring true at all that love triangle was kind of literally based on you know a bit you know a scene in a prison and a pebble <laughs> it kind of just it just does not didn't work at all really i mean they they had enough of um you know trying to trying to kind of force the love story into the in the original trilogy kind of plucking arwen out of the the appendices and you know the margins of that and kind of you know forcing it relatively convincingly into the film um this feels like you know that that looks kind of subtle next to 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 kind of uh, that the uh, love story in the uh, in the third one it's very calculating. Uh, it really does feel as if they've gone, there's no real eye candy. Can we make one of the dwarves sexy? When, mm. you know, it's been established before that even female dwarves have beards. They're not really meant to be a uh, sexually desirable race. Yeah, yeah. It's it's just wrong-headed uh, from start to finish. Um, kind of going back to the idea of that fan edit, um it really is. That is the kind of the holy grail of fan edits, isn't it? The the you know the three hour cut that will work. <laughs> um, is there is there a way that can happen? Do you think, or do you think this? Like, I think I, when I thought about it, kind of Jackson's almost made Legolas and Toriel too integral to the, the the second and third films to remove them. Yeah, I think that is the main problem. Is that the the stuff they've added? I mean, I'm sure someone could kind of creatively do it. I'm sure there is probably a very time and labour and... Uh, Topher Grace could do it. Yeah, I was going to say, give Topher Grace a call. I'm sure he could kind of put it together. He can stitch it together from audiobooks or whatever it is that he did with the... Uh, <laughs> whatever he did with the uh, the, the Star Wars prequels. Um, yeah, I think there's probably a way to make it. It wouldn't be great. I think there's probably... There are great moments that you could probably string together in a sort of three... Two, two and a half, three hour film that would be make it a lot more uh, satisfying, but uh, the 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 whole enterprise is so misguided from the off and so uh, 
uh, haphazard in places that it would be very hard to make something that really worked. But again, I, I, I do feel bad comparing it in the same way that the, the supercut of the Star Wars prequels, they say it can't work as a satisfying film because there's just so much stuff in it that's terrible. <laughs> but, mm. you know, at least it, it shows that a tr- a different treatment of this story with different decisions made at the beginning could have made something uh, really kind of great. What do you think um, Guillermo del Toro's uh, Hobbit trilogy or, or or two films would have looked like? Uh, I think they probably would have had a great sense of wonder to them, um, which I don't think you really see in the Hobbit in the the, the, the Jackson versions. I think that a sense of wonder and a sense of awe at the at the mag- at magic is something that pulses throughout all of Guillermo del Toro's work, and I think that he could have really brought that to it. I think that the uh the overall kind of tone of it would probably have been a lot darker yet sweeter uh in the same way that you see in like Pan's Labyrinth i think that he he probably would have brought a visual richness to it that wouldn't have been swamped in the uh in the CGI he probably would have been less CGI um because he's obviously someone who loves practical effects in general and this was obviously before he made Pacific Rim so if you're looking at the work he did on the Hellboy films where they tried to do as much physical physical as possible with that stuff, I think he probably would have found a way to maintain the series' uh, physicality in a way that ended up being lost with uh, Jackson's work. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's that kind of great what if. It's going to be the Jodorowsky's Dune of, uh, of, uh, of our generation. Also, Smog would have been clockwork. Mm, yeah, steampunk uh, <laughs> smog. Um, do you think what, what's the kind of uh, legacy of uh, Lord of the Rings? I mean, um, kind of thinking about this is is I kind of um, struck me during uh, when we were kind of looking to do our end of year episode last year, and I was watching Maleficent because it was a big hit, and I kind of wanted to kind of comprehend why. And you know, after watching it, I, I still don't know. Um, but the thing that kind of struck me about that film is the kind of shockwaves of Lord of the Rings, the original trilogy, are still being felt now, kind of 10 years later. Like, there's no need for the origin and story of Maleficent to have a big, sweeping, epic battle sequence in it with huge characters that kind of visually ape the style and, uh, of of, uh, of Lord of the Rings and the battle sequences. And there's even kind of direct shots that were kind of straight lifts from uh, from uh, from uh, Return of the King. Um and that kind of sense, that that kind of aesthetic, and that kind of idea of uh, kind of grittying up fantasy stories and making them into big uh, kind of epic battles using like huge amounts of participants is something that we've seen in loads of films. I mean, like the Narnia films have got huge battles in um, again, which kind of uh, ape the style of of uh, Lord of the Rings. Um, I mean, obviously, we had a lot of fantasy films that came out. Uh, off the back of um, uh, Lord of the Rings, that kind of died a death, um, uh, that you know never got past their first film. They wanted to build a franchise, and they never kind of worked. But uh, the ones that did owed a huge debt to Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I think you can really see that the Narnia films are a big example because they really did take that tone of epic fantasy and, and apply it to uh, to to a classic work of fantasy literature. And obviously, you have the C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien connection there and that they were 
you know old friends and everything um mm-hmm. you can also see it in i think it was kind of a combination of that and the success of the harry potter films that really drove a lot of that where you see adaptations of uh, fancy literature aimed at uh, young adults and or, but also that try and apply a fairly serious tone to it you can really see the influence of both in the uh, the golden compass for example mm-hmm. um which is a film that would not have been made if Harry Potter wasn't a huge success and they just started buying up any kind of successful fantasy kids book, but also probably wouldn't have had the uh, scope and the kind of ambition that it kind of has, but not really uh, if the Lord of the Rings films hadn't come along. So I think the return of epic fantasy filmmaking certainly uh, is probably driven by that. And maybe even to an extent... Uh, the it, it may have had kind of an influence when you look at the, the superhero films in that I think that superhero films as a genre uh, uh, would not have had the money and the time invested in you know taking pre-existing stories and throwing huge amounts of money at it if the Lord of the Rings films hadn't come along and said hey if you make a film which has a seemingly niche audience but you focus on, you know, characters and storytelling and spectacle, people will come and watch it. Uh, I think you can really see that in sort of Marvel's universe and the way that they, something like the Avengers, where they focus on a team of a lot of different characters all coming together for a shared purpose, or in the Thor films especially, have a lot of Lord of the Rings in them. Mm. Um, I think you can really see it in in just the the blockbuster model in general. Mm. Yeah. Um They've got a lot to answer for, those guys. Um, here's a question. Um, probably the last question I'm going to ask you today. Um, Peter Jackson, after The Hobbit and after The Lovely Bones and after King Kong, um, is it cruel or unnecessary or uh, downright mean of me to say that um, it's fair to say he's a spent force? Uh, I don't think it's unwarranted. Um, mm-hmm. I think that he is, you know, the the King Kong had, you know, its moments and kind of felt like a, a passion project. So you were, you could think, okay, it didn't entirely work, but you know, he's he's trying something. Lovely Bones was just a horrible mismatch of material, and again, I think Lovely Bones is a really good uh, uh, precedent for The Hobbit in that it's a story that should be treated in a very small way, in a very focused way, in a way that isn't overloaded in CGI. And that's exactly what he did. <laughs> he took mm. a story that he should have done in the style of, uh, of heavenly creatures. And he made it into something in the style of, uh, you know, sharp boy in lava girl or something, you know, it's just like, it's, it's just a complete mismatch. And again, you have that with the Hobbit, the Hobbit should have been a kind of very focused character driven sort of thing. And instead it gets lost in empty spectacle. Um, so now he is kind of depending on how you break it down he's either five or three films deep in kind of a a bad run um, depending on whether you treat the hobbit as three separate films or as a single project Mm -hmm. Uh, i don't think that he is i don't think that he has nothing to offer but i think that he needs to do something to refresh himself i think he needs to move away from big budget filmmaking or he needs to do something that he genuinely cares about. I think the problem with both the lovely bones and the Hobbit is their projects that he came to late in the the day after someone else had 
kind of uh, done a huge amount of work on them. And as such, I think there's less of a sense of personal investment there as it would have been if it was something that he really cared about and kind of uh, fathered from the very beginning. Mm. Um, and that's the difficulty, I suppose, is that Peter Jackson is one of, uh, you know, a tiny, tiny handful of directors working today who have got an un- unlimited budget to do whatever they want. Yeah. So it's 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 kind of hard to say, oh, you know, take a step back and do something kind of small scale when you're Peter Jackson and you can, you know, demand twenty million from uh, as a director fee uh, to direct a remake of King Kong that costs two hundred million. Mm, do you think we really need to uh, pair him up with Lars von Trier? I think so. The Five Obstructions, King Kong, the Skull Island edition. Um, which, you know, I'd watch. Uh, I mean, I think King Kong kind of should have been a warning sign for The Hobbit, really, because, I mean, some of the CGI work in in uh, King Kong was just horrifying. Yeah, I mean, the bit like, where they're running away from the uh, Diplodocuses or, or whatever they are, that bit. Yeah. Really, really terrible. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, and just some of the narrative choices as well, like, I think the bit that always springs to mind is when they get they fall down into the insect pit and uh, Jamie Bell has got the Tommy gun and there's insects crawling all over Andy Serkis and Jamie Bell closes his eyes and fires and shoots them all off, which is... <laughs> uh, it's not even like a cool little moment. You're just like, oh, Jesus Christ. Um, but no, in King Kong, I mean, obviously there's a lot in there that's pretty amazing, but um, yeah, I think alarm bells were kind of sounding for me at that point. Mm, yeah that that definitely it definitely feels like that may have seemed like an aberration but when you take that and the lovely bones into account you can really kind of look at them and say yeah all the warning signs were there that uh the hobbit probably wasn't going to turn out great with peter jackson's involvement um you know what i would really like to see and which won't happen because like you say he's like a hugely successful director who can do anything he wants uh, I would like to see him do what Sam Raimi did after the third Spider-Man films and, and return to making a small-ish budget horror film. Um, mm. I think that would be interesting to see if he could still do it. Um, if he can't do it, then I think that that would confirm that he has a spent force and maybe he should use his clout and his money as a producer because I think he, certainly with something like District 9, he you know he had someone in neil blomkamp who was young and talented and and promising and he took him and he said hey we've got this idea we'll i'll help you get it made and then you know it was a huge success critical critically acclaimed nominated for best picture and all that sort of thing i think uh maybe that would be a better use of his time to kind of find young talent and foster it rather than keep kind of forcing himself to uh make films that clearly are not really things he cares about all that much yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, I concur. I mean, I think I'd really like to see him do some more stuff with puppets. I think Meet the Feebles uh, two uh, is 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 a film that's gagging to be made. I think there was a an interview of him where he said he wanted to do something like that. He wanted to do something small scale again, but like George Lucas says that he wants to make small independent films after Star Wars, and that's that's uh, yet to materialise. Yeah, they always said this week, didn't he? Um, I'm going to make two films, but I'm not going to release them because it's not worth it. Which is a little bit like saying, oh yeah, I've got a girlfriend. She lives in Canada. None of you know her. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, which is, you know, what you used to say when you were 12. 
Um, I've made the best film of my career, but no one's going to see it for 200 years. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, um, massively over underwhelmed uh, by the uh, the Hobbit films, which is a shame. Do you think it kind of takes the edge off the first three, or, or are you happy to kind of view them in isolation and pretend they don't really exist? Uh, I'm happy to view them in isolation. I think there's uh, enough distance between them in terms of production and cast and even with trying to force musical themes and characters from Lord of the Rings into The Hobbit, I don't I don't kind of think of them like that. It's not the same as, like, uh, to a certain extent, the, the Star Wars prequels. Again, Star Wars prequels kind of do mar the original Star Wars films. Not hugely, but when you watch it, you know, you kind of are... Just you, you, it's hard not to think of like some of the bizarre narrative choices that are made there. Like, well, why does how could C3PO have been built by Anakin and uh, you know, and in trying to square the events of the trilogy, uh, you know, is it there's nothing in The Hobbit that kind of massively disproves or invalidates plot points and character arcs in the Lord of the Rings films? You know, there's stupid things like. Uh, Legolas coming in and meeting Gloin and them talking about you know his lad Gimli and stuff like that, uh, but it's not that that doesn't kind of counteract the good work that's done in the uh, in the first three films. So for me, mm. it doesn't really mar it too much. Mm. The worst bit of uh, foreshadowing, worse than yeah, my boy Gimli, is the bit at the end of the third one where um, Lee Pace goes up to Legolas and says, um, "You seek out someone." Um, uh, you know, he's called Strider, but his name, his real name is You Will Discover in Time. And it's just like, um, like, yeah, really? Huh? What? Mm, that's mm. pretty awful. As is the entire wraparound of revealing that he had, he had just finished writing the his book as like Gandalf showed up, which I think is established in The Lord of the Rings and everything, that he is writing it or he has just finished writing it. But like the idea that he has just finished writing it at the point that Gandalf comes in is really uh, bad because it just kind of reminds you, oh yeah, this is all like an aside to a story I was more interested in watching. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Anyway, um, so that's we kind of we said we were going to do the Hobbit, um, and yeah, we have a sense of obligation in the same way that we watched the last film we have, um, and uh, I kind of feel better about it now. I feel like I've got it out of my system. Um, and uh, you know, one day maybe I'll revisit the films and see if they. I was a bit too harsh on them when they came out, but something tells me that's not going to be true. Yeah, uh, I definitely feel as if you know you you could watch them, and I think the things that are good about it, you know, Martin Freeman's performance foremost will probably still stand out and still be good, but that you'll just kind of without the kind of the scale of watching it on the big screen. I think a lot of the even the spectacle will just be kind of empty. I mean, most of it was empty in the third film because it was all uh, indistinguishable CGI people killing each other. But mm. like, I think if you watch that on anything other than a big screen, it will just be even more empty and hollow. Mm. And I don't think any projection format or size of screen is going to ever um, kind of improve uh, CGI Billy Connolly on a digital pig. Yeah, that was... Uh... That was pretty terrible. It looked mm. it was really, it was really, really bad, and also it just really stood out because I don't think they'd 
done like a full CGI version of someone who could just be a guy in a slight bit of makeup before. Like obviously the the baddie of the the pointless baddie of the trilogy was like a CGI orc, mm. but that's that's like it seems like a, a more detailed process than a guy in a wig and you know a bit of makeup to make be made to look like a dwarf. Mm. Yeah, and you know to have uh, Billy Connolly as a kind of uh, rambunctious kind of foul mouthed ginger Scotsman who headbutts people. Um, I mean, I know Tolkien was accused of racism sometimes, but. I mean, that's just that's just bringing it, you know, too far, isn't it? Especially after just after the no vote, <laughs> too soon, man. What's really rubbing it in their faces? Mm, yeah, I have to say that, like, um, you kind of talk about the kind of the orc baddie that's kind of fashioned from nowhere that's in the film, and there's another one that kind of pops up and is kind of like a secondary baddie that Legolas has to kill uh, to give him something to do. Um, I watched my nephew, my sixteen-year-old nephew, play Shadow of Mordor. Uh, quite a lot this Christmas, and uh, reminded me quite a lot of the last film uh, <laughs> um, in terms of kind of aesthetically and uh, just how kind of meaningless it was. Even though Shadow of Mordor is actually quite a very, a very good fun game with these kind of procedurally generated uh, villains, uh, and I just thought hmm, this this seems familiar. Yeah, you, you do get the sense that it has reached a point like Star Wars where you think it's created such a vivid and cool world that it's actually more fun to just kind of play around with it in your own way through video games or, uh, you know, other stories than to actually watch the film versions. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Anyway, let's put this to bed. Um, the Hobbit, um, yeah, I kind of just wish it never happened. Yeah. Um, my feeling in it is that uh, the the final scene of the film is kind of a great kind of metaphor for the whole thing which is that Bilbo comes home to the Shire discovers that he's been presumed dead and that his, all of his neighbours and relatives have have ransacked Bag End and so like when we watch it we're looking at a once beloved place that's been stripped of everything of value by people who care only about money mm. which is hey are you saying that's what Peter Jackson has done? Possibly um, oh. All I would really like to do is kind of sit down with him and say, did you intend that? Because mm. if you did, it's a great fuck you to the people who kind of paid you to make this film. Yeah. If not, your subconscious is trying to tell you something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, like I say, I kind of said earlier, like a, uh, a film that's needlessly stretched into three films is a cash grab, um, uh, you know, which is telling the story, which is actually about anti-greed. Uh, and not being uh, kind of uh, driven kind of uh, insane or to the point of distraction by uh, shiny trinkets. Um, yeah. The, the only way they could have missed the point more is if they just fr- uh, flashed up the words, war's fucking great over the mm. original trilogy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's it. Uh, Peter Jackson's kind of ruined everything. Um, <laughs> I think we should make a documentary called uh, The People Versus Peter Jackson because he's now... Such a uh, a figure. No, he's not. He's he's kind of still lovable and kind of nice and that. Um, so yeah, we'll kind of give him one more chance um, until he brings out the fourth Hobbit film uh, or the Silmarillion. That's going to be the next one, surely. Mm, or uh, just goes after like that a, a translation of Beowulf that's just been released from Tolkien. Just kind of like it's got Tolkien's name on it. I'll do it. Mm, yeah, Daps yeah, his yeah. journals. Could he do? Um, 
a film in which it's all like the characters as babies, but the <laughs> babies are voiced by John Travolta and Bruce Willis, and it's called Look Who's Tolkien. Uh, I would hope so. I think that's a good place to end. Mm, absolutely. Anyway, uh, we'll see you again next week. <laughs> we won't be talking about anything uh, Hobbit-related. That's it for us. Um, so until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.